if something, God forbid, were to happen to you tonight. We all know life is fragile. You get messages on Facebook, somebody unexpectedly went to the hospital. The guy that had a heart attack who's a marathon runner and you would have never guessed it. The person who's young and gets diagnosed with a terminal illness. The car accident that came out of nowhere. And we know there's two destinations. Where do you go? Jesus talks about the day where he will separate the sheep and the goats. There's, there's only two animals in that illustration. There's no llamas. There's no mountain lions. There's sheep and there's goats. The entire world, the entire race of people will be separated between two groups of people, sheep and goats. He'll divide them. The sheep go with him, the goats don't. Are you a sheep or a goat? Now, many times we're, we're quick to answer this because we said a prayer when we were a kid. We're quick to answer it because we go to church, maybe. We're quick to answer it because we look at other people and we're like, well, well I'm not that bad. That's definitely a goat. If that's a goat, well, then I must be a sheep then. And those are thoroughly unbiblical ways to answer that question. Exodus 23 is an unlikely spot to, to answer that question, but that's where I want to take you to continue in our series in Exodus. If you turn with me to Exodus 23, what does it take to make it? Or maybe another way to ask the question is, if you're in, how do you know you're in? What does that look like? How do you get there? So if you need a Bible, please lift your hand and we will get one to you. See one hand in the back. Exodus, if you're New to the Bible, the second book in the Bible, and we're in chapter 23, Exodus 23. We're going to read from verse 20 to the end of the chapter. And what we see here is God having rescued his people out of bondage, he's going to take them to the promised land, and they're going to have to survive this wilderness experience, and he's telling them what it's going to take to be in. What it's going to take to make it. So he says in verse 20, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Verse 22, but if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. My angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God. And he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you, and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. 
and I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. And I will drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So right off the bat, when God tells them how they're going to make it, how they're going to get there, God tells them, I'm going to send an angel before you. He's going to lead you, and he's going to be the pathfinder. He's going to find his path. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to map quest it. You, you just follow this angel. You don't have to invent special weapons. You don't have to concentrate on special formations to break the ranks of the enemy. Just follow this angel. It's kind of like when I tell my kids, hey, you've got the easiest part of your life is right now. So all you have to do is obey what I'm telling you. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to pay bills. You don't have to figure out where you're going to get food. Just obey, right? This is what he's telling them. Easy. I'm sending an angel before you. You follow him. You obey him. My name is going to be in him, so if you rebel against what he says, you rebel against what I say. So there will not be rebellion. One leader is going to secure the promised land for you. So how do you make it? Well, when he tells them what the covenant life looks like, you're in a covenant relationship with God, and for that covenant to be intact, and for you to make it, to be in a relationship with God, because at the end of the day, that's the question. Are you or are you not in a relationship with God? And it's what he's teaching the Israelites is what a relationship with God looks like, and he's telling them this relationship is secured by my leadership. Follow me, obey what I say, I'm securing it for you, I'm paving the way. This clear in verse 20, look at verse 23. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites, these are all the bad guys, right? The Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. So he's the one that's going to take care of the work. He's the one that's going to make this possible. In verses 27 to 28, You see that emphasis again. I will send my terror before you. They're not going to be afraid of you. You guys are chumps. right? But they're going to be afraid of me, and I'm going to send my terror in front, ahead. So by the time you get there, they're already scared to death by the time you get there. I'm going to send my terror ahead of you, before you, and throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and make your enemies turn their backs to you. They're not even going to face you and fight. You're basically just chasing them down as they're trying to run. Easy. I'm going to send my hornets before you. Verse 28. We shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you. I'm going to use nature itself against them. And look at the end of verse 31. I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out. 
How are they going to drive them out? Because God gives it into their hand. Period. God takes care of the work. So the first way we fail the test when we're asking, huh, how am I in a relationship with God? How do you make it? Well, I'm going to push hard enough to make it. Wrong answer. God leads you or he doesn't lead you. So what secures our relationship in, our, in this covenant with God is God's leadership. So after this sermon, I don't want anyone to go home in a state of sort of spiritual paranoia. I don't want you waking up in the middle of the night in cold sweats, wondering, am I going to hell? Am I going to heaven? Am I saved? Am I with God? Am I not with God? It shouldn't be that confusing. Do you know Christ as your leader, as your commander? Now, I don't want to take a whole long time on this, but many scholars believe that this angel of the Lord, when he appears, the angel of the Lord is not an angel. The angel of the Lord is a human form representation of God. Now, in the New Testament, that's Christ. Why wouldn't it be Christ in the Old Testament? So many scholars believe that when you see the angel of the Lord, like in this passage, this is a pre-incarnate Jesus himself. He was the burning bush. He's the commander of the Lord's army. And he's the one that they are to obey and follow. And that's no different for us today. How do we survive? Well, we have an author and perfecter of our faith. Right? The author of Hebrews tells us, we fix our eyes on Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. He writes your story, and he perfects it. We don't do it. He does it. So we ride his coattails all the way. So our relationship with God is secured by Christ. It is secured by the one that we are to follow, and he makes However, it's not a but, but it is a however. The difference is oftentimes when we say, this is true, but, and then we kind of un undo what we just said. This isn't an undoing. And it might take a couple minutes for us, for maybe some of us to realize that it's not an undoing of what I just said, but it comes alongside it. It's part of it. Our covenant life is secured by Christ's leadership but it's marked by radical obedience. You don't secure your relationship with God by radical obedience, but if your relationship with God is secured by His leadership, then it is shown in radical obedience. So we see that in this text. Look at verse 21 to 25. He just said, He's going to lead you. He's going to blot them out. He's the one that's going to take care of it. Then he says, verse 21, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies, an adversary to your adversary. And so, verse 23, he's going to blot out these tribes, these people, groups from before you. But look at verse 24. You shall not bow down to their gods. You will not serve their gods. You will not live life the way they live life. You will not do what they do. 
but instead you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless. So we oh, I say a prayer that makes Jesus my leader, he makes Jesus my shepherd, and then my cup is going to overflow, goodness and mercy will follow me, and I just get kind of do whatever I want. Nope. If the Lord is your shepherd, then your life is going to look a certain way. And God is saying, if you're going to be led by my angel, if you're going to be led by Yahweh himself, then your life is going to be marked by obedience. If you disobey, then that's rebellion against that leader. And guess what? That's not your leader. <laughs> leader is someone you follow. You can call someone your leader, but if you don't follow that person, that person's not your leader. You're following somebody else. Somebody else is your leader. So this passage makes it very clear. Look at verse 20, uh, 32. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land. They make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. He just finished in the past few verses talking about wiping out the land, clearing the land out for them, doing it little by little so that it's doable for them, so that they can not be overrun by wildlife and things like that. He's telling them what the borders are going to be. All the inhabitants are going to be delivered into their hand. And then the last two verses, but this is what you're going to live like. And so a life that is secured by Christ is a life that's marked by radical obedience not secured by it but marked by it and that that's the difference between protestant christianity and every other religion out there every other religion out there, you secure the relationship by what you do but what the bible makes clear is it's secured for you by god but if it's truly secured for you by by christ your life looks a certain way and you don't get to define what that certain way looks like now, I know that when we read this, what's confusing is that he uses if-then language, right? If you smash those idols down, I will bless you. If you listen to his voice, then he'll lead you. If this first, then that second. Well, that sounds like salvation by works, right? If you work enough, then God will secure your salvation. But that's not what Pastor Lucas just said. Pastor Lucas just said he will secure it, and if it's secured, then it'll look like this. But that's not what this is saying grammatically. Grammatically, it's saying if you obey, then the security. All right? But that's not, it was easy to go, oh, that's Old Testament. No, that's New Testament too. That's how Jesus says it. You remember in Matthew 6, he tells his disciples, if you forgive others, well, then your Father in heaven will forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, then God in heaven won't forgive you your trespasses. How about when Jesus tells them, if you deny me, then you'll be denied. But if you don't deny me, then you won't be denied. If, then. But what I submit to you is that that language is speaking to reality from the human perspective. Humanly speaking, we can't see what God sees from heaven. God knows who's in, who's out, but from our perspective, we really don't. So he puts it in an if-then language 
so that in real life we can see what that looks like. For instance, somebody comes to church, they've been attending church for a while, they want to be a member. We're big on membership, we love membership. We think that somebody's saying, hey, we, we don't want to be just attenders, spectators, we want to get involved, and we want to be accountable, okay? And we want to hold the church leaders accountable. It's a two-way street. Come to the class, they learn about our church, we talk about the gospel, they say, yup, we're on board. I ask them, what is, how do you save? They have the right answers. We talk about church, they agree. We talk about what membership is biblically, they agree with all of it. We pull out a church covenant. Here's what the church covenant is, here's all the stuff we talked about, here's what the Bible says the Christian life should look like. The elders sign it, the member signs it. And then we introduce them into the membership, we all clap, and we're all happy. Okay. Six months later, the husband's cheating on his wife. Okay. One of the elders approaches him. Hey, you can't live like that. Ah, you should see what it's like with my wife at home. She's so annoying. Whatever the excuse is. Well, you need to repent, brother. I'm not repenting. They don't think there's something to repent of. I think God wants me to be happy. Why wouldn't he want me to be happy? This marriage is miserable. This woman makes me happy. It makes sense. This is what God wants for me. No, this is not what God wants for you. Verses. I'm not listening to that. Okay. Humanly speaking, it looked like here's a guy who loves the Lord, passionate about God, Read scripture, does his quiet times, knows how to answer questions about the gospel, joins the church, shakes people's hands, loves people, and then something happened. Humanly speaking, it looked like he was on board and then he's not on board. But scripture is replete with verses that te teach us that what the reality is, is that he was never on board. He duped the elders, he duped the church, he duped his wife, he duped his kids, he probably even deceived himself. But the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You don't eat the pudding, to extend the analogy, and go, oh, this was perfectly made, and then suddenly an ingredient is missing. No, the ingredient was already missing. It looked good, it's the right color, it's the right consistency, but when you tasted it, you realize it's missing whatever that ingredient is. That ingredient has been missing. You just couldn't tell until you ate it. So, why use the if-then language? Because it's a church telling members, if you uphold the covenant, then you're a member in Christ's church. But that's not the church saying, if you uphold the covenant, then you'll be saved. It's saying, a saved person lives up to the covenant. That's, that's exactly what Jesus was teaching in Matthew 6. That's exactly what this passage is teaching here. If you're really a member of the covenant, it takes faith. It doesn't matter if you were at the bottom of the mountain and you saw Moses bringing the tablets. It doesn't matter if you were there to witness the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire. You were there when the sea split open and you walked across dry land, turned behind you, and the ocean, the sea fell down on the Egyptians. You were there. doesn't matter. If you don't have faith, then you're not a part of the covenant. 
But how do you know if somebody has faith? Faith is lived out in obedience, period. Faith looks like something. Faith itself is invisible, but you see the effects of faith. That's why Jesus used the analogy of wind. You don't know where the wind comes from or where it's going, but you see the effects of it. So what he's helping the Israelites to understand is if you're going to be in this covenant relationship with me, you're going to follow my word and you're going to, your life is going to be defined by radical obedience. And so that's just what James teaches us. You remember James in chapter 2, he says, a faith that doesn't have works to go with it, it's not a saving faith. What is it then? Somebody says they have faith, they'll sign a church covenant. They'll tell their spouse, I'm saved. We baptize them. I, can't, I don't have x-ray vision, right? But James is saying, if you have a claim to faith, you say you have faith, but your life doesn't show it, that's not a saving faith. It's something else. It's a faith that doesn't save. It's a helpless faith. It's a faith that doesn't help you. He also says in chapter 2, verse 18, that our faith is shown by our works. James isn't contradicting the gospel, guys. He's enforcing it. James is saying, if you really have Christ, act like it. Your life will look like it. But if your life doesn't look like it, it doesn't matter if you repeat it after somebody in a prayer. It doesn't matter if you prayed something that you found on a tract one day. Or it doesn't matter if you read the Bible at night. Your faith has to be shown in your works. Now, works doesn't get you the covenant, but if you're really in the covenant, it'll be shown. It'll be demonstrated in your life. So this is why God tells now here's how we know this, guys. They're already in the covenant. Right? He already provided the covenant. He already provided the rescue from Egypt. If it was by works, he would have given them the law first. Live up to this law, then I'll get you out of Egypt. Live up to this law, and then I'll give you manna. Live up to this law, and then I'll give you quail, because you got bored of the manna. Plus, y'all need some protein. Right? That's not what happened. He got them out. He split the Red Sea. He, he rescued them from the Egyptians. He gave them bread. He gave them all this stuff. And then the law. So you're not in God's covenant by works. You're in God's covenant by His grace. But if you're really in His covenant, then your life will demonstrate the faith that you claim to have. Now, I've said this a few times already that our lives should be marked by radical obedience. Why, do I, why am I saying radical well, I'm saying radical because you'll notice the language he uses. Look at verse 21. Pay what kind of attention? Careful. Your translation might say, guard yourself. Which might be a little bit tighter to the Hebrew. Guard yourself with regard to him. But the reason why ESV says pay attention is because when we think of guard yourself towards somebody, we think of pull back and don't relate too much. You know, don't show your cards too easily with that person. Guard yourself. Be guarded. That's not what he means. He means guard yourself against disobeying this person. 
pay careful attention, be detail-oriented as to the commands coming from this leader. Verse 22, if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, that's why I say rap. See, we're the ones that introduced this category of the lazy, casual Christian that kind of cherry-picks the things we want to follow and ignore the stuff we don't want to follow. We'll follow some of it, as long as we're still a little bit comfortable. We're not going to follow all of it. Or we'll kind of jog this out, but we're not going to run hard and strive to the end of the race like Paul talks about. We'll kind of just jog this out. Yeah, my knee hurts. But that's, that's an invented category. We don't see that here. The only time you see that category is when Jesus says something like, I wish you were hot so I could make tea, or I wish you were cold so I could make lemonade, but you guys are lukewarm. What do you do with that? Room temperature water. What, what, do, what do you do with that? It'd be nasty tea. It'd be last, nasty lemonade. It's gross. And I will spit you out. That's, that's Jesus confirming that there is no category in between the sheep and the goats. So what do the sheep look like? The sheep are all out. They follow his voice. They, they don't do anything else. Eat here. Bah. They eat there. Stay away from that cliff. Bah. Stay away from the cliff. What the shepherd says, the, sh the sheep does. Where the shepherd goes, the sheep has to go. And so he talks about this radical obedience, even in the Old Testament, when they weren't empowered by the Holy Spirit to even do it. But it's the expectation of being in a covenant relationship with God. We don't get to make up the rules. You follow the rules. So I'll send this angel before you. He'll lead the way. He'll secure the outcome. He'll secure your salvation. But guess what? If your life doesn't look like it, then it's not secure. You've not come to know Christ. You don't know Him. If Jesus is kind of a spiritual rabbit foot for you, you just kind of pray to Him when you're in trouble. Jesus is kind of a hobby. He's kind of on the side. You kind of know a little bit about Him. I mean, you don't have a, a desire to know Him. Follow Him hard, wherever He calls you to go. Then you don't know Him. So it's radical obedience because of these words like all and careful and guarded. And you'll notice the contrast. It's either or. It's either outright rebellion. In verse 21, look at verse 21. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. What is the other option? Rebellion. Not, not just kind of, well, if you just kind of obey. If you're not obeying his voice, then you're in rebellion and you don't have forgiveness. That's what it says right there. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Another reason why we believe, or I do, that this is pre-incarnate Christ. He would never say that of an angel. But Jesus Christ bears the name Yahweh, and if we don't listen to him, we don't really obey him, we're not pushing hard after him, we're just kind of like meh toward him, then you don't know him. If you don't know him, then you don't have forgiveness for your transgressions. If you don't have forgiveness for your transgressions, you're not in the covenant. So it's either outright rebellion or full-on obedience. Careful, idle 
smashing obedience. Look at verse 24. Verse 24. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Have you ever been so passionate about something that you just do it all the way so there's nothing left? That, that's what he's saying. It's not just ignore the idols. It's not just stay away from the idols. It's completely smash them to bits in your life. It's easy for us to say, well, I'm not an idolater. I don't really have idols. Idols are sneaky. Idols are sneaky. The problem is not that little statue that's in the living room that the family is bowing down to. That's not the problem. Why would they do that? You ever think of how dumb that sounds? To take a piece of wood, carve it into the shape of a man with an eagle head or something, and put it at the top of a fireplace, and everybody, it's 3 o'clock, let's bow down in front of this. That's like insane. Why would you do that? The kids are looking at dad weird because they just saw dad carving that thing in the garage an hour ago. Why are we now bowing down to it? Because for them, that little block of wood now carved represents a God that provides something like agriculture. Our crops need to grow this year. We need to pray to the God of the crops. And this little block of wood isn't the God of the crops, but it represents the God of the crops, and we're going to bow down to it. We need to have children, or we'll die in this land. We need kids to grow up and help with the agriculture, and of course for them to have kids, and we need to expand and grow and multiply and fulfill the earth. You can't do that if you can't have kids. And so here's this God of fertility, this God that guarantees if you do so many sacrifices, this God will provide children in the mother's womb. So, it's 3 o'clock. Let's all just take at least 20 minutes and bow down to this God or we won't get what we want. We won't get the security of food on the table. We won't get the security of having children to take the torch for the following generations. How do I know that? Look at verses 25 and 26. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from you. None of you shall miscarry. None of you will be barren. I'll fulfill the number of your days. These are their prayer requests, guys. They want a long life. They want children. They don't want to be sick. And they want bread and water. And that's why they had idols. The idol in charge of bread. The idol in charge of water. The idol in charge of uh, uh, bearing children the idol in charge of long life. And so they would bring crops to the, that idol and they would bring a sacrifice to this idol and pray to them. Now, they're heading to a culture that does this all the time. You're a fool if you don't do this. What are you, an idiot? Wait a minute. You're going to tell me that you're just going to bank on this one God? There's a God for everything. That one God can't handle all these different things. You know, and they're not competitive the God of crops is just concerned with crops. He doesn't care that you pray to the God of fertility. Pray to God for fertility for fertility. Pray to the God of crops for crops. Just introduce them together. I'll get along. They, they, you know that coexist sticker? That's ancient. All the gods get along. All the paths are the same path. It's just every god kind of has their own thing. 
And here comes Yahweh saying, no, no competition. I want it to just be me up there. And that just sounds kind of selfish. That doesn't sound right if he's a loving God. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Plus, let's cover our bases. What if Yahweh's busy and he's not thinking fertility right now? At least we have one designated God that will take care of fertility for me. He knows they're going to start worshiping these gods. He says, instead, you need to smash them down completely. If you know that I'm over fertility, and I'm over bread, and I'm over water, and I'm over life and death, there are no other gods before me. They are powerless before me because I drive them out. All these people praying to these idols, I'll blot them out. The idols are false. They don't provide security. Only I provide security. Now fast forward to today, we don't bow down to idols for fertility. We don't bow down to idols for crops, for agriculture, to put food on the table. But if we go out there after church and our Monday starts and we work, 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 and we skip our devotions and we skip scripture reading and we skip lengthy times of prayer, and we skip just stopping for a coffee to disciple somebody or talk to somebody about the Lord. We skip tucking our kids in at night with the gospel every time. We do that. How about once a week? And we skip, 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 skip because I'm tired. I got to go to sleep. And if I don't go to sleep, I can't have energy for work. If I don't have energy for work, I can't do good work. If I don't do good work, I might lose my job. And if I lose my job, I can't put bread on the table. Wait a minute. Who puts bread on the table? Your God might be you. Yahweh is telling them, at the end of the day, I'm the ultimate provider. I'm the one that provides security for you. Don't find security anywhere else. We oftentimes go to everyone else first for security, and then we go to God last when there's absolutely no other option. The doctors are confused. They don't know what to do. The person with the oils and the herbs, you tried medicine, now you go to the oil and the herb person, they don't know what to do, you rub this on this, you put stuff on your chest, you know, you went to the Latino mom and she put Vicks on your chest, you tried everybody, right? Then finally it's come to prayer and come to the church and say, hey guys, can you pray because I don't know what else to do. Why wasn't that first? So we're not anti-doctors or anti-medicine or anti-oils or anti-vitamins or anti-exercise. We're not anti that stuff. But we don't find our security in those things, and then God is kind of this last-minute ditch effort. Idols are sneaky that way because they don't look like idols. They're just sources of security, and it's a trap. Verse 33. They shall not dwell in your land, the, the gods shall not dwell in your land, the people that worship those gods shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. A snare is a trap that springs on you. You don't see it. You don't see it coming, otherwise it wouldn't be much of a trap, Right? So you convince yourself this is a perfectly safe place to walk and then whoosh, the snare snaps. And God is saying you're going to be tempted to follow this path of going, look, let me just work a little more. Let me just ditch one devotion time. Nah, let me just not do devotions today. 
I know I'm supposed to do this, you know, because God requires it of me, but, you know, it's, hey, it's all by grace. But I have to clock in, or I have to do this, because if I don't, I don't get the security for my family. That's a trap. Because you're never going to get that security. You get that promotion. Now you're scared of the younger guy that's behind you. He's got the same education, but he's younger than you. You scared? You're always going to be looking over your shoulder. But it's the person that says, God provides jobs. It's not that we don't go out there and work hard. Sure, we work hard. We don't worship it. We don't worship our houses. We don't worship our families. We don't worship our jobs. All those things are provided to us by God. And we, if we're not careful, we'll make idols out of the gifts instead of the giver. We will serve the benefits instead of the benefactor. That's why it's tricky. It's not tricky in the sense that you're going to leave here and go to a Muslim service or hang out with some satanic Satanist friends and light candles and kill a goat. You're not going to do that. That's so obvious. It's the subtle things. The things that are good things from God, but then we worship those things instead of the one who gave them to us. So obedience is radical. And I think maybe if we look at our lives and we're asking ourselves, man, have I really placed my faith in Christ? We have to have, make sure that we look around and we see bits and pieces of smashed up idols. Not look around and see other things that compete with God. So, do we obey? It's the simple things. Scripture commands that you read Scripture. Do you read it? What are the excuses that come into play? Eh, it's long. Mm, it's boring. Eh, it's confusing. Those aren't good signs, guys. That's, that's, those are bad signs. Because it's simple obedience. You know, Christ left his disciples with one command. Go make disciples. Let's pass that one. Car accidents stand before God. He's how many disciples you made? Oh, was I supposed to do that? Scared? Too busy? Too distracted? Don't know how? Not willing to put in the work to find out how? So, if we look around, we're not looking to go, hmm, have I been living out the covenant life perfectly? It's not about perfectly. But is it a pattern? Is the pattern mainly obedience or is the pattern mainly disobedience and a bunch of excuses? What's scary, family, is we look through Scripture from front to back, beginning to end, and the voice is the same. The voice is the same. I call you into a relationship with me and your life is radically changed. You were reborn, regenerated, a new creature. The old you was scared, the new you is not. The old you had excuses and bowed down to those excuses. The new you doesn't. So, do you know Christ? If you know Christ and he's your commander and he's charging the hill, pick up your gear and charge the hill. Let's go. 
know how much time we have left. But as we look at what a covenant relationship looks like, and we see that it's proven and marked by radical obedience, then let's let Christ produce that in our lives. Let's not go home scared about whether we know Christ or not know Christ. If you know him, live it out. If you don't have a desire to do it, you just don't want to do it, God's laws just sound uh, 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 just weighty. Maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe. Maybe you don't know Christ. But come to him in faith. Don't come to him with a prayer that says, okay, God, let me start doing this stuff and then I'll know you. Come to him and say, I can't do it. I don't like your laws. I don't like your rules. I want to do what I want to do. Now you're ready. Repent of that. Smash those idols down and let them take over your life for real and move from church attender to full-blown radical disciple of Jesus Christ. We all have room to grow, but our lives should be marked by a pattern of faithful obedience, not excuses. Let's pray.